You are listening to a sermon series from Open Door Fellowship Church. Good morning, Open Door. Thank you, thank you. It is such a privilege, honoring and humbling for me to be not only in the pulpit again, but kicking off this preaching series on 1 Thessalonians. I think you will find that this book is filled with deep truths that are faithful, hopeful, and loving encouragement, which especially in these times we all need. I want to take just a moment uh, to say two things. Number one, there is an outline of this in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along and make some notes to yourself. Number two, um, beginning on the 9th of September, about, what is that, about three, three weeks, four weeks from today, we're going to be teaching a class, second hour, for adults called Angels, Holy and Hellish. We're talking about both the heavenly angels and the demonic beings, and uh, we're looking at what the scripture says about those, as opposed to what art or modern depictions say or teach about angels. They're really different, believe me. Anyway... <clears throat> This morning, we're starting our series on 1 Thessalonians. I want to show you some graphics that our own Bob Ryan created for this series. Did I mention he's a personal friend of mine? Yeah. Well, he is. And uh, this is kind of the overall graphic for the series, Be Encouraged, Faith, Hope, and Love in 1 Thessalonians. Beautiful. And then this is kind of a summary of the series it's a quotation from chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, where Paul says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. And then the uh, general background slide, for the, or, or the graphic for the slides, is this one, which I've superimposed with my title this morning. The title of the message is Meet the Thessalonians. Kind of like Meet the Parents, but a little different. Uh, anyway, I'm going to try to do three very big things this morning. The first thing is to give us all a historical background from the book of Acts about the founding of the church there during Paul's second missionary journey as recorded in, in the book of Acts. The second thing is to give a geographical and cultural background of Thessalonica. The modern city is called Thessaloniki in Greek. And then the third thing is to provide us with some background and basis for the rest of the series on 1 Thessalonians. That's asking a lot, I know, but we're going to kind of cover the second missionary journey as a kind of a Bible in a blur kind of a thing, uh, looking at it very quickly. As is my custom, I'm going to ask that we all stand together and read this morning's passage. Uh, it's very short today. It's only chapter 1, verse 1, uh, but I... Th- I think we'll find that there are some things in here that will be of great interest and value to us in this series. Let's read aloud together. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we are definitely in need of your grace and your peace today. As always, we we rely upon you in every way 
to live our lives. So, Father, as we look at these important matters about 1 Thessalonians, I pray that your spirit will guide our hearts and our minds and that we will see in this today what you have for us to see. In in the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. The thesis I'm about to show you is really for the very last part of what we're talking about today, the outline of 1-1 itself, but it has some bearing on the rest of it. The thesis is that Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy write to a church they founded in order to further ground them in the Word of God. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Unlike most of his letters, this one actually starts out with all three of those names. And throughout the letter, Paul uses we almost exclusively. So it really is all the three of them writing this letter. So, let's look at it. First of all, we need to get some background historically. The historical background of this book is Paul's second missionary journey. This journey started probably around 49 AD. Paul is accompanied on this journey by Silas, who is also called Silvanus in this context and in others. If you remember the very end of chapter 15 of Acts, Paul and Barnabas have, the language makes it very clear, a very sharp disagreement over John Mark. John Mark had gone with Paul and Barnabas on his first journey and had left the work early on, and Paul didn't like this. And so when they go on their sec- about to go on their second journey, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark al- along again, and Paul said, no, thank you. Uh, and, and there was really a big dust-up about this. So Barnabas took John Mark and went on a trip, and Paul took Silas, or Silvanus, and went on his second missionary journey. The name Silvanus is the Latin or Roman form of his name, and it comes from the Latin word for wood or wooded area. We still have that in today's like Pennsylvania, Transylvania. Those are areas where there are woods, and that's why they're called that. Um, Paul, or like Paul, Silas was a Roman citizen. He was a Hellenistic Jew. We know he was a Jew because he was a leading figure in the church at Jerusalem, according to Acts chapter 15. And we know that he was Hellenistic because of the name that he uses here and other places and the fact that he was a Roman citizen. So unlike many Palestinian Jews at the time, or those from that area, he would have uh, probably had Greek as his first language and Aramaic probably as a second language. His name in the Hebrew or Aramaic, Silas, probably comes from the, the name Saul. His being a Hellenistic Jew is important. It makes him an ideal candidate for Paul's second journey because they would be ministering to both Jews and Gentiles. So Silas would have been able to relate to them both. We also know from Acts that Paul asks Timothy to join him when they are at Lystra, just to give us a kind of a reminder, their journey started from Syrian Antioch, which is right over here, They went up through this area of Cilicia and into Lycaonia to the city of Lystra, right here. And it was at Lystra that Paul met Timothy, probably had met him before, but uh, he asks him to accompany them on this journey, which if you think about it, is quite an honor, isn't it? Can you imagine? 
very young man. And Paul says, I think you ought to come with us on this journey. And his mother's probably freaking out. But at any rate, Paul takes him. We know from here and other places in the scripture that Timothy was the son of Eunice, a a Jewish woman, and a Greek father. So he had not been circumcised. And Paul circumcises him before they leave on this journey, principally, I think, in order to alleviate any problem that some of the Jews they would encounter might have had with Timothy. Because Paul wanted to be able to say, yes, he is Jewish. See, his mother is Jewish and he's circumcised. So I think that's probably the reason that he did it. So anyway, Timothy is asked to accompany them. As they go on this journey, Paul wants to go into Bithynia and the Spirit says no. Paul wants to go down here to Asia Minor and the Holy Spirit says no. So what Paul does is he bypasses this mission area and ends up in the city of Troas, which is right here on the Aegean coast in Asia Minor, just south of what is today Istanbul. And while he's there, he is given a vision, what we call the Macedonian vision. The the purpose of this was apparently to guide him to where God wanted him to be. It's interesting because in most of Paul's journeys, we have almost no reference to his seeking guidance from God regarding regarding where he should go and what he should do next. It was as if... He's going along the Roman roads and he just comes to the next big city and that's where he spends some time. That's where he founds a church. But in this particular case, it was obviously important to God that Paul go over into the Macedonian and Grecian area, the Grecian peninsula. And so he does that. He comes from Troas. He crosses this little arm of the Aegean right here, lands at Neapolis and ends up in Philippi. And while in Philippi, he first has contact with a lady named Lydia. We, we know that Lydia was a Gentile because she's called the God-fearer here. We need to take a moment and talk about who the God-fearers were. The God-fearers were Gentiles <clears throat> who had apparently become tired or disillusioned with the polytheism and the absolutely perverse lifestyle that was prominent in the Roman culture at the time and had turned to the simplicity and moral ethics of Judaism. And so they attached themselves to the synagogue, but they hadn't yet become Jews. They hadn't gone through any kind of conversion process to actually join the nation Israel, so to speak. And these God-fearers were important in the synagogues because they were very often well-known and very wealthy people. They had both political and financial influence. You remember, for instance, in Acts chapter 10, when Peter goes to the house of Cornelius, Cornelius was a God-fearer. He was one who had attached himself to the synagogue there. And as a result, God brought the gospel through Peter to him. In this case, we have Lydia, who is, according to what Acts tells us, not only a God-fearer, but is also a seller of purple. And there's some question as to whether it's talking about purple fabric or purple dye. She probably did both, sold both, which means, by the way, that she was very well off. That's important because purple was highly desirable 
and the shellfish that it comes to. It's a complicated process, but nevertheless, it was it was a very expensive commodity, highly prized amongst the upper class, especially in Roman society. So the fact that Lydia was a seller of purple undoubtedly means she was very well off. And so Paul leads her to Christ. She becomes the first convert in Europe, which is significant if you think about it. The first European Christian was Lydia. Kind of amazing, isn't it, when you think about it? So, the next thing that happens is that there's a bit of a dust-up in Philippi. And how that came about, according to Acts 16, is that there was a young woman who was demonized, who was following Paul and Silas around and saying, these men are servants of the Most High God and are proclaiming a way of salvation. That's literally what the Greek says, not the way, but a way of salvation, which may have been part of the problem as far as Paul was concerned. So what Paul does is he casts the demon out of her. Well, the men who had been profiting from her fortune-telling are upset about this, to say the very least. So they go to the city authorities and have Paul and Silas arrested, and they are beaten, it tells us in Acts, with many blows, which is probably not an overstatement, and they were imprisoned there at Philippi. At midnight, Paul and Silas start praying and singing hymns of praise to God. I mean, what else would you do when your back has been turned to ground round and you're chained to the wall? <laughs> Let's sing praises to God. So they did. And God did a couple of amazing things. One of the amazing things he did was send an earthquake that not only opened all the doors, but somehow removed their chains from them, which is a pretty impressive miracle, isn't it? And of course, the jailer, waking up during this process, sees all the doors are opened, assumes everyone has fled, and knowing as he does that, according to the law of the time, he would have had to serve out the sentences of all of those escaped prisoners. He's about to kill himself. Paul stops him, says, don't, we're all still here. Now that to me is a more amazing miracle than the earthquake. That these people who were imprisoned and sort of hardened criminals say, oh well, let's just stick around instead of running away. That's amazing. It really is amazing. The result of all of this is that Paul shares the gospel with this man, with his family. They all become believers. They're baptized that night. Well, the next morning, the magistrates of the city who had done these things to Paul and Silas hear about what has happened. And so they send word, you know, you, you can just tell these guys that they're free to go. Just go in peace. Oh, yeah. Well, Paul and Silas said, no, no, not so fast. We want you to come here and talk to us. Because, see, the problem was that they had beaten and imprisoned them without a trial. And they were Roman citizens. You don't do that. These magistrates knew that if the Roman authorities heard of this, they were going to be in deep trouble. And so they come and talk to Paul inside and say, you know, we're so sorry and, you know, just... Why don't you just leave? We'd be all be happier. Well, Paul and Silas actually do leave, go on to the next city. But 
it occurred to me as I'm thinking about this, you know, I'm not sure I would have been in such a forgiving mood personally. I might have wanted to stick around and see to it that these guys really got it stuck to them, you know? But Paul and Silas didn't. They went on their way. Now, as they go then from Philippi, which is up right in this area, right there, that's Philippi, they come across to the city of Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica is an important city. As Paul's custom was, the first day, the first Sabbath that he is there, he goes to the synagogue and he starts preaching to them and telling them about how Christ has come, the Messiah is here, and he has fulfilled all the prophecies of the Old Testament. And he attests to the validity of Christ's ministry from the Old Testament. Well, the text tells us that some of them, that is some of the Jews, believed him, were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas. But in addition to some of these Jews, there was, it tells us in Acts, a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women who also went with Paul. We also know from chapter 1, verse 9, that eventually there were others, pagans, idol worshipers, in the area who also became believers and joined that little group of, of the church there at Thessalonica. The problem is that when these God-fearers and these leading women were taken away by Paul, as far as the Jewish authorities were concerned, Paul was messing with their finances now because these people were not only well-off, but they were influential politically. So the God-fearers, and in addition it says, and a number of leading women. Well, knowing what we do about the culture of Thessalonica at the time, <clears throat> many of these leading women were probably very wealthy. It was not unusual in this area to have wealthy women entrepreneurs who had become wealthy by doing various kinds of businesses and building those businesses up. And some of them apparently were among the God-fearers who had joined themselves to the synagogue and now they've left and gone with Paul. So that probably means then that there's going to be trouble. And sure enough, there is trouble. The opponents stir up the crowds against Paul. They actually conspire with, it says, wicked men in Acts, and they start a public riot. These men then go and invade the home of Jason, which is apparently where Paul and Silas were staying, and they drag Jason and some of the other early believers before the city authorities. Well, it happens then that the city Authorities released them. Apparently, Jason promised that we'll be good boys and girls and we won't do anything ugly, even though they weren't the ones who'd done anything bad. But anyway, uh, they then apparently persuade Paul and Silas and Timothy that it's time for them to move on to somewhere else, just in the name of preserving public safety, so to speak. So Paul then goes on to Berea. Now let's go back and look at where Berea is. This is uh, Thessalonica right here. This is Berea right here. So it's not very far from Thessalonica to Berea. 
You probably remember it tells us in Acts that the Bereans received Paul more willingly, more openly, because as it says there, they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So they actually listened to what Paul said and went back to the scriptures and said, you know, there really is a lot of things here that are going on. But the Jewish authorities from Thessalonica have followed Paul to Berea. And they start rabble-rousing there just as they did in Thessalonica. So Paul decides to move on to Athens, which was, of course, the premier city on the Grecian peninsula. And in a minute, we're going to talk about what Paul did there at Athens. But what it tells us is that he left Silas and Timothy at Berea. They probably also spent some more time in Thessalonica when they could sort of sneak in there without creating too much of a problem. But when Paul got to Athens, of course, and let's, let's look at that again, from Berea, you'd have to go down the coast and then probably overland to Athens, which is right here on the tip of the Grecian Peninsula. It's easy for us in looking at this map to think, oh, well, it's just kind of a hop, skip, and a jump. Uh, but it's not really, it's a long ways. And we have to remember what travel was like in those days. You know, this whole journey to us, oh, well, it's kind of a fun tour through Asia Minor and part of Europe. Well, except for the fact that you're going part of that way by ship, which is always dangerous and can always be shipwrecked. Then you're going overland. And by the way, you're walking. Um, and as you walk, you could have robbers and all kinds of brigands and sort of things happen to you. Dangerous or Travel in those days was extremely dangerous and time-consuming. So this little trip down the Grecian Peninsula here would not have been an easy jaunt. I mean, it's kind of like saying, okay, we're going to leave church here and we're going to walk to San Diego. Um, I don't, that doesn't appeal to me. I don't know about you, but it, it just kind of leaves me cold. Anyway, Paul gets to Athens, and while he's there, you remember in Acts, it records that incredible message that Paul preaches at the Areopagus there, Mars Hill in Athens, where he talks to them about this altar he found to the unknown God. And he says, he's the one I want to tell you about, the God you don't know. And then he talks about Jesus' life and death and burial and resurrection. And most of the people there say, the guy's full of it, resurrection, I mean, come on. But there are some who listen. Some who say, tell us more, and they follow Paul. So in the meantime, Paul leaves Athens and goes to Corinth. Let's go back and look at that for a second. Here's Athens right here. Corinth is up on this little isthmus between the Grecian Peninsula and this would otherwise would be an island, a large island. And so Athens or Corinth is right there, a very important place. And the city near it is Sencrea, which was the port city that was associated with Corinth. So Paul arrives at Corinth and eventually is rejoined by Timothy and Silas. Now, it occurs to me that that's the point at which Paul wrote this letter to the first letter to the Thessalonians. Because here were these guys coming back with news of what was going on in Berea and Thessalonica. And Paul says, you know, I need to write to those people. Because it's pretty clear from Acts that Paul was in Thessalonica less than a month 
Can you imagine? He's there for about three or four weeks. He starts this church. It has some important people in it. And then uh, I'm gone. I'll, I'll see you later. And of course, he really wanted to go back. We find out from this letter. He really wanted to go back. But he hadn't yet. Hadn't had a chance to yet. So he's writing this letter to strengthen them, to encourage them in their faith. Well, if you remember the events in Corinth, then you will remember that people were being baptized. And so the Jews get upset about this and they appeal to Gallio, who is the proconsul, the the big honcho of the Romans in Achaia, that particular province. And they try to get him to silence Paul. Basically, Gallio says, I don't need any of this. You just guys are arguing over religion and I don't care about that. So he sends them away. Paul then leaves Corinth down through Sencrea, spends a little time at Ephesus, wants to go back and spend more, which he does in his third journey. But then he comes across the Mediterranean here, back to Jerusalem first, and then back to Syrian Antioch, which is where he started from. And that really is the third or the second missionary journey of Paul. That's what it's all about. So let's talk for a minute about the the background of this. The city of Thessalonica was founded in 315 BC by Cassander of Macedon. This was just eight years after the death of Alexander the Great. It has been an important city then in Greece for 2330 plus years. That's quite a, quite a municipal history, isn't it? Can you imagine? 2,300 plus years. The city was named after Thessaloniki. The name means victory in or at Thessaly. Thessaloniki was the half-sister of Alexander the Great. She was the daughter of Philip of Macedon, but by a different mother than Alexander. She's the one after whom the city is named. <clears throat> It was and is a great harbor on the Grecian Peninsula. If you go back to the map for just a second, you can see that Thessalonica is right up here, and it's surrounded by a land mass on two sides, but it has a really big and well-protected harbor, which makes it important for shipping, for commerce. It's been an important city for a long time in Greece. This is a panorama of the port at Thessaly that was painted in 1917, This kind of reminds me of that famous painting of the Grand Canal in Venice. But this one is anonymous. We don't know who painted it, but we do know when. Early in in 1917. So this is an aerial view of Thessaloniki today. That's impressive, isn't it? It's a big port. It really is. This is another picture of some of the derricks and shipping lanes and so on that there are in Thessaloniki today. And this is a great picture. It's a hillside area here in the foreground. And then you can see all the way out to the ocean out here and the mountains surrounding it. It's beautiful, isn't it? Really impressive. So it's a great harbor, still important. It has many historical monuments and important sites in it. For example, This particular tomb, a Macedonian tomb, dates from about the time of the founding of the city in the 4th century B.C. It's been there a long time. (laughs) This is the Arch of Galerius, 
which was built 299-298 AD. Um, and this is a detail from these columns on the arch. This is a detail of the work that's done there. Pretty impressive, isn't it? Especially since it's 2,000 years old almost. This is the rotunda of Galerius, which was built around the same time, still standing at an impressive... Uh, in fact, it's a UNESCO World, World History Site. Now, the city of uh, Thessaloniki is still an important city. It uh, has a total population, the second largest city in Greece. It has a total population of over a million people in the area around it. It accounts today for about 10% of the total GDP of Greece, just this city. So it's still an important city. It is also a beautiful city. This is the, an era park area right beside the seashore. As you can see, it's gorgeous. It really is beautifully executed. This picture, though, you know, I, I looked at a lot of slides. I looked at a lot of slides about Thessaloniki, and I found these two, and I thought, these are my kind of people. They like coffee and pastries. I love these people. Uh, <laughs> I really like, this is cool. Cool stuff. I really like it. It gives you an idea of the culture of the area. Now, back to the actual outline of chapter 1, verse 1. <clears throat> Finally. Uh, <laughs> Paul refers to them in First Thessalonians 1, 1 as the church of the Thessalonians. Other than his address in Galatians 1, 2, where he speaks to the churches in Galatia, this is the only Pauline epistle addressed to the church. You have to realize this is either the first or the second of Paul's epistles, depending on exactly when Galatians was written. <clears throat> Either way, it's a very early example of Paul's epistolary writings. In almost all of the later writings, he begins to refer to the people he's talking to as saints, holy ones. Here he talks to them as the church. The only occurrence of the word saints in 1 Thessalonians is in chapter 3, verse 13. I want to talk a minute about what a church is. A church is an assembly of called ones. We are, for example, called out of darkness into light. We are called saints. We are called according to his purpose. And many other things the New Testament tells us about our calling as the church. The word church in Greek is the product of putting two words together, the word ek, which means out of or from, and kaleo, which means to call. <clears throat> so you would think by derivation that the emphasis of the word is those who are called out. But in actual usage in the New Testament and in contemporaneous writings, the emphasis is not on the fact that they're called out, but that they're called together. It is an assembly or congregation of believers that are called together to form a body. That's what a church is. It's interesting because despite the way the, way the word church is used today, in the New Testament, a church is never a place or a building. It is a body of believers, whether in a particular location or area, or whether encompassing all believers everywhere. Now, we often refer to this building as the church, but that's not the New Testament use of that word at all. We are the church. The people of God 
who are called together in one place are the church. That's an important thing for us to remember. So Paul is writing to a church. By extension, he's writing to us, isn't he? Because otherwise, why did God preserve this epistle and pass it down as the canon of Scripture through all of the ages? He also says about the church that it is in God the Father. That's what he says in verse one one, In God the Father. And he also says, And the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're in God the Father, and we're in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're used to Paul's epistles where he talks about being in Christ. Dozens and dozens of references like that in all the epistles. But we never think about the fact that we're in the Father. But I want you to look at what Jesus said in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Wow. So we're in Christ. We're in the Father. The Father is in the Son. The Son is in the Father. Wow. And let's get it even more complicated, shall we? In 1 Corinthians 12, 31, 13, Paul says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. So the Spirit is also in us. And we are in the Spirit, right? (laughs) So we're in the Spirit, we're in the Father, we're in the Son. The Father's in the Son, the Son is in the Father, the Spirit's in the Father, the Spirit's in the Son, the Son's in the Spirit. This gets really complicated, doesn't it? The upshot of it is this. You and I, as believers, as part of His church, His body, are not only indwelt by the triune God, we are surrounded by Him. Imagine that. Just imagine what that means. The God who created everything is in us and we are in Him. Wow. I really like that. I really do. That's important. So, the church at Thessalonica. And it's interesting that he ends ends verse 1 of chapter 1 by saying grace and peace to you. Now, this is a frequent thing that Paul does in his writings. That formula, grace and peace, appears 13 times in Paul's epistles. 13 different places. Here's the list. It's in your outline there, so you don't necessarily have to write them down, but they're they're worth looking at. But here's something else. This same phrase also occurs in 1st and 2nd Peter at the beginning of those epistles. It occurs in 2nd John where he where he inserts mercy between them, grace, mercy and peace. And also interestingly, it appears in Revelation 1:4 where Christ himself himself is speaking and he bids us grace and peace. Wow. Now, here's what's remarkable about that. In all of those occurrences, you would think at some point, some writer says, you know, I want to vary things. I want to mix it up a little bit. So instead of saying grace and peace, I'm going to say peace and grace this time. 
never happens. It never happens. The order is never reversed. Without grace, there is no peace. Grace has to come first. One other thing we're thinking about. We know of God's grace and peace only because of his self-revelation to us in his word. Unless Paul and Silas and Timothy or someone else had come to Thessalonica with the glorious gospel of Christ, they would never have known grace and peace. Right? Romans chapter 1 is pretty clear that we can know that God is We can know about God's glory. We can even know about his wrath to some degree by looking at creation around us. We can see the magnificence of what God has done. But it is only through the gospel of Christ, it is only the preaching of the cross that brings us the news that grace and peace are available to us from God. That requires the gospel. It requires the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ for us to have grace and peace. There's no other way. So, this brings us back to our thesis this morning that Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy write to a church they founded in order to further ground them in the word of God. We've seen something about Paul's circumstances and what brought him to Thessalonica. We've seen something about the city itself, its history, its culture. And we've explored a lot, a bit about the very first verse of the book. This letter is written for such times as these. Brothers and sisters, this letter is exactly what God has for us in this season. Let's rejoice together and be encouraged through these words, through what Paul has written to the church at Thessalonica that is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the gospel of Christ which brings us out of darkness into light, which calls us together as your body in this place. Father, teach us from this book, teach us to be more faithful, more hopeful, more loving, and to be encouraged by what you're doing and what you have done. We ask this in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen.